Thank you, everyone. Nicely done. Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter, excuse me, Mark chapter 12. I'm getting ahead of myself. I was reading Mark 13 earlier. That's why I had it on my mind. Mark 12 today will be in verses 18 through 27. Let me read our passage as we begin today. Hear the word of the Lord. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is God's word. It's an errant and authoritative word. And let's stop and ask for his help as we uh, proceed this morning. Father, I pray that you would uh, pour out your spirit upon us. Uh, give us eyes that see and ears that hear. Lord, strengthen our minds. Help us to give our full attention to what your word says. Jesus, strengthen me as I preach, strengthen my throat, my mind, and my heart. Be glorified among us, Christ Jesus, and we ask this in your name. Amen. In our um, scripture reading just moments ago, uh, hopefully you remember that we read these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's this underlined phrase in the first slide that I want you to pay attention to this morning, uh, to a living hope. I want to remind you that when the word hope is used in the Bible, it's not hope in the sense that you and I usually use the term. Uh, when we use the word hope, it usually refers to wishful thinking. Uh, it refers to something we hope will happen, uh, or that we hope will come true. But typically our expectations for these things aren't very high. It's not likely to happen. I share as an example that earlier this year, my hope was that the Chicago Bears would make the playoffs. 
And some of you would say, that's not wishful thinking, that's delusional thinking. <laughs> when the word hope is used in the Bible, it's not a reference to wishful thinking. And this is a real hurdle for the American mind or the Western mind to get over how this word is defined in the Bible. Uh, it's a reference in the Bible to something we confidently expect to happen. I mean, it's not wishful thinking. We confidently expect it to occur. Our hope that Jesus Christ will return to earth is not wishful thinking. It's an expectation we hold with confidence because God has always been true to his word and he'll be true to his word in the case of Christ's return. It will happen. Our hope in the resurrection, our hope, uh, our confidence that our physical bodies will be raised and reunited with our souls at Christ's return, that's not wishful thinking either. Or if we're still alive when Christ returns, that our physical bodies will be transformed into glorified bodies. That too is something we confidently expect to happen. And so going back to our slide, this hope, this confidence is called a living hope, a living certainty. Uh, and by living, it means that this hope is alive. It is active. It is powerful. It is effective. Our certainty of the resurrection is meant to be a living, throbbing thing. Our certainty of being raised and of what we'll experience when we're raised is meant to be pulsating and driving, uh, a driving force in our spiritual lives. And we're not just to give this a flitting thought here and there, this joyful, driving hope that I'm pointing you to today is meant to consume us, to take over. Just beyond the verses that we read today, Peter said this, therefore preparing your minds for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, allow this confident certainty of the resurrection and of what we'll experience to take over your thinking. Let this consume you. Let this hijack uh, your thought life. We talk of thoughts, intrusive thoughts, all the time, don't we? We have them. They flit in. We're like the dog on the movie Up, uh, Doug. Uh, we can't focus our attention because something is always intruding. This is meant to be the thought that hijacks your brain. The, the hope, the certainty that one day everything will be different. It is going to take place. I mean, so far in life, you've gone through life day after day after day, uh, and with, for the most part, most days are the same. Get up, have breakfast, have coffee, not in that order. Uh, but one day, everything will change. In the twinkling of an eye, it's not just, uh, this is not just a cartoon. 
This is not just a, a, a fantasy. This is not fiction, not science fiction. This will really occur. It will be a real event. It's going to happen. And so often in our minds, we view it as just fiction. Well, how do we make the hope of resurrection a living, throbbing, pulsating reality in our thoughts? How can we make this hope active and powerful and effective in our walk with Christ? I believe as we examine the two sections of our passage today, we'll, we'll leave with the hope of the resurrection more on our minds than before. At least that's my hope. Uh, so let's look at these two sections of Mark chapter 12, verses 18 uh, through 27. In the first section of our passage, we'll find a group to whom the resurrection meant nothing. The Sadducees. And we'll hear the Sadducees attempt to embarrass Jesus through a ridiculous question about the resurrection. And there are two things I want to point out to you about their question. One is just to uh, describe the group known as the Sadducees. Uh, let's start by finding out who the Sadducees were. Verse 18 in your Bible begins, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. There were several groups, parties, or sects in the New Testament era, Pharisees, Herodians, Zealots, the Essenes. But the two that dominated Jewish life at that time were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, the, the Sadducees uh, were primarily the ones who made up the Sanhedrin. They were the majority of the Jewish ruling council. We've already run into the Pharisees several times in Mark's gospel. Just last Sunday, we saw them scheming together with the Herodians. Uh, Pharisees are the ones that strictly abide by the law of Moses, as well as the traditions of the elders handed down orally. But this is the first time that the Sadducees have appeared in Mark's account. Uh, they came from influential, wealthy families. Uh, sometimes they're referred to as chief priests in the New Testament because they were usually the, the uh, most important priests. But they only followed the first five books of the Old Testament. That's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy the books of the law, the, the books of Moses, the first five books, we call it the Pentateuch. Sometimes uh, it's called the Torah. They didn't believe that the rest of the Old Testament was part of Scripture, nor did they follow anything outside of uh, the five books of the law. They didn't pay attention to the, the oral traditions that the Pharisees guarded so closely. It was the first five books of the law or nothing. And for this reason, they didn't believe in the resurrection because it was, they, it was their opinion that it was not portrayed in the first five books of, of Moses. Uh, and to clarify, what's Mark referring to by resurrection? Well, R.C. Sproul sums it up like this. 
the doctrine of the resurrection states that the souls of men live on after death and that when God brings history to a close, he will raise the bodies of all human beings from the grave and reunite them to their souls with the righteous then being welcomed to eternal life with God and the unrighteous being sent away into eternal torment. All will be erased, raised, both believers and unbelievers, uh, one to eternal life and one to eternal torment. They didn't believe in this. They didn't believe there would be a resurrection. The Pharisees did. The Sadducees did not. Sadducees believed that at death the soul perished along with the body and that there were no future rewards or punishment. And this was a hotly debated uh, issue between Sadducees and Pharisees in the first century. Uh, perhaps it's what made them so mean-spirited. Uh, uh, they were known as uh, mean-spirited, superior, and self-righteous. Even though they came from families of high standing, they're portrayed as ill-mannered and arrogant uh, and rude, even to their fellow Sadducees. So they were sad, you see. <laughs> you saw it coming like a freight train, didn't you? That, in a nutshell, is who these men were. One of the main parties in Jewish life during the time of Jesus, this mean-spirited bunch who were in charge of the Sanhedrin, and therefore also most of the temple activities, did not believe in the resurrection. Well, their mean spirits came out in this second thing I want to show you here, and that's the question that they asked Jesus. Uh, we see their question. Look at the very last phrase of verse 18. It says, And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child. The man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, that is correct. That is what uh, um, Deuteronomy 25 commands. It's called the law of leveret marriage. If a man died, uh, the law prescribed that uh, the dead man's brother should marry his widow to provide an heir an heir for his deceased brother. And this would ensure that the brother's name would continue for one, but also that someone, he would have an heir that would inherit his property. Now, if the widow were to marry outside the family, then uh, the brother's land would be passed on to someone else outside the family. Land was very important in uh, Israel, and the Lord told them to hold on to their land and so this, is, uh, this law was passed to provide for this, that the land would stay in the family. In fact, if you think back to the book of Ruth, this is the very thing that Boaz does uh, in the book of Ruth. Ruth's husband had died in the land of Moab, and Boaz being a relative, not a brother of her deceased husband, but a more distant relative, fulfilled this law by marrying Ruth. Well, here's where, it gets, uh, here's where it gets ugly. 
uh, as we go further, this, the Sadducees escalate this question into something uh, rather ridiculous. Look, look at verse 20 with me. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second uh, took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. The Sadducees here invent a story about seven brothers where each in his turn dutifully fulfilled the law, uh, the command of God with the, with the first brother's widow, except none of them was able to provide an heir uh, for their brother. But the really ridiculous part comes in verse 23. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. The idea of the resurrection back then in, in the Jewish mind was that life would continue in the resurrection pretty much as it went on uh, here on earth. In other words, if you were married uh, on earth, you'd be married to the same spouse in heaven. This is what they believed. In the Sadducees' mind, this would create the preposterous situation in heaven of a woman, a woman married to seven men. And they thought that was foolish. That's ridiculous. They're not only uh, ridiculing the doctrine of the resurrection. Their view of the resurrection was incorrect, by the way. They were also trying to humiliate Jesus in the process of making him look uh, foolish, embarrassing him in public. So this is their, their question, their mean-spirited question. Um, ridiculing uh, the idea of the resurrection and hopefully ridiculing Jesus too. But, friend, no one, absolutely no one stumped our Lord. Ever. And we'll see this as we move on to the second section of our passage. Uh, we're going to hear Jesus' correction. He corrects the Sadducees through three statements. And I've translated these into modern English for you. The first statement he makes is, you're way off. Uh, you're way off. Look at verse 24. Jesus said to them, is, not, is this not the reason you are wrong? The phrase you are wrong is the Greek uh, verb planao. It's where we get our English word planet and plane. And this means, this term means to wander off track or to be led astray. And maybe similar to a planet in the sky might appear uh, to wander about in the sky. The Sadducees had wandered off track spiritually. They had been led astray from the truth. But they weren't just off track. They were way off track. If you glance all the way down to verse 27, really the very last words of this paragraph, Jesus says to them there, you are quite wrong. You have been greatly led astray. You have erred greatly. Or as we say, you're way off track. You haven't just been led astray. You're far from the truth. Why the Pharisees were closer to the truth than these Sadducees were. So first, uh, you guys are way off. The second statement Jesus makes 
You don't know God's power. You guys are clueless about God's power. Again, verse 24, Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Those two things in, at the end of verse 24, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus goes on to explain those. He does so in reverse order. He talks about the power of God next in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Uh, this has troubled many believers over the years. Uh, this idea that uh, in heaven there will not be marriage or people given in marriage. Uh, and this troubles primarily uh, believers who have found great joy in their spouses and their children and their marriages. They're troubled to hear that what has brought them such joy in this world will end in the next. But Jesus is quite clear. Those who are raised will be like the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. Now, one explanation for this statement. Uh, some Bible scholars suggest that, well, there's no need to marry or, uh, or be given in marriage um, because there's no need for angels to produce offspring. There are already an innumerable number of angels in heaven, and there's no need for more, so they don't marry and reproduce. And, and these same scholars say this will be true of us as well. There, there will be no need for more people, and so glorified saints won't marry and have children in heaven. Well, I suppose that's true, but it's a little crass, you know? The problem that we have with this verse is that we don't see how anything could bring us greater joy and pleasure than the relationship we have with our spouses, especially the physical relationship we enjoy with our spouses. How could anything bring us greater pleasure and joy than that? There is something far, far greater than the joy we found in marriage or anything else in this life. Listen to this illustration from uh, Dr. Sproul. He describes a time in seminary when the speaker in chapel, uh, in their chapel service, attacked practically every truth that he held dear and that most believers uh, hold dear. He went to a, a liberal seminary in Pittsburgh. And after this chapel message from this horrible speaker, Dr. Sproul caught up with his mentor and blurted out to him, if John Calvin could have heard that address, he would have turned over in his grave. His mentor stopped, turned to look at him and said, young man, don't you know that nothing could possibly destroy the happiness that John Calvin enjoys at this moment? If we have the notion that we can be disturbed in heaven, oh, there's trouble brewing with my family downstairs. I better do like the family circus and go down and hover over them. <laughs> we won't be doing that, I'm sad to say. That's a, 
I'm sorry if I'm crushing your dreams. You won't be hovering over your loved ones like they show in the cartoons. If we have the notion that we can be disturbed in heaven or that we'll actually miss things from this life, then you and I don't understand the power of God either. The power he has, uh, the, the pleasure he's capable of creating, and the care he has for his people. We don't understand his power to do that. To think that anything down here could make us long for it while we're with the Lord. Listen to what David said uh, in Psalm 16. He describes uh, eternal life that he looks forward to. This is later applied to Jesus Christ. But it applied to David, first of all, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So I just want you to let this sink in. And, uh, you know, if you grew up watching Bugs Bunny, the idea of heaven is that you'll be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Um, Elmer Fudd still wearing his top hat with a little cloud garment wearing around his waist. Our notions of heaven can be so ridiculous, um, so driven by the world. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And that phrase alone, just, just stop and look at that. Joy that is fuller than anything you have ever known. And consider this joy that the Apostle John describes. This is from Revelation 7 as he describes the saints in heaven. He says, they shall hunger no more neither thirst anymore. I don't think that's just about physical and, and uh, physical thirst and hunger. I think it's also a reference to spiritual thirst and hunger. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Revelation 7, 16 to 17. The reason we won't miss anything from this life is because we'll be overjoyed to be in the presence of the Lamb. Our eyes will be fixed on Him. It'll be difficult to look at anything else. Our joy in heaven will not be family-centered. I hate to say, we will not be all wrapped up in being reunited with our loved ones. Nor will our joy be centered on seeing our spouses again. Our joy in heaven will be Christ-centered joy. 
He will be our greatest joy. And if you think that's pretty blah, then I think you might have a problem. If that just seems, uh, I guess, truth is if you're not interested in Christ down here, probably won't be interested in him in eternity, indicating that you probably don't know him as your Savior and Lord. Because he puts that desire in us. Well, Dr. Sproul went on to say this. We do not understand the depth of joy and delight that God has prepared for his people in heaven. If you use your imagination and try to think of the greatest possible experience that you will have in heaven, then multiply the joy you will feel in that moment by a million times. You still will not have begun to feel in that moment um, uh, you still will not have begun to appreciate what God is preparing for his people in heaven. Our existence there will be filled with joy far, far exceeding that which the marriage relationship provides in this fallen world. This lies ahead for you. If you know Christ as your Savior and Lord, uh, joy unspeakable and full of glory. God has the power to thrill you far beyond uh, the way marriage thrilled you or thrills you on, on, on earth. And so Jesus says to these men, you don't know God's power. You don't know the power of this joy awaiting in the resurrection. It's not just earthly joy that goes on in heaven. It is something purer and more powerful than you can dream of. Well, you're way off. You don't know God's power. And thirdly, he says, furthermore, you don't know God's word. Um, you don't know his word. Jesus says, uh, this first in verse 24, he says, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he goes on to explain the scripture part of it in verse 26. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. You are way off. Notice that Jesus is quoting from the only portion of his word that they actually accepted. The first five books of, of Moses, uh, specifically Exodus chapter 3. I want you to hear this account about the burning bush. Just let me read it for you and picture it again in your mind. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. 
He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, The Lord said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And then uh, a little further in, God also said to Moses, Say to this people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. In these verses about the burning bush, God refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as though they're still alive, as though they're still living. And that's why Jesus concludes in verse 27, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. He's not the God of ghostly shadows and gray matter, people living in Sheol, the netherworld. He is God of people who are still alive, living with him in eternity, in heaven. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must still be alive. He is still their God. And right there in the one portion of, of the Bible that they accepted, he shows them a statement affirming the truth of the resurrection. You don't know God's word. So this is how he corrects them. Oh, you're way off, guys. You're not just off, you're way off. And you don't know God's power, what he is capable of. And furthermore, you don't know his word either. Do you have hope today? Have you thought lately about what you'll experience at the resurrection? Probably not. Did you think about it at all this morning? Man, one day this will be gone, and I will be gone, and it'll all be different. We don't typically think of the resurrection as we go through our day. We don't keep those thoughts fresh in our mind. But friends, it's meant to be a living hope, a pulsating, driving hope. And so take the correction of Jesus to heart. Don't get off track. Don't wander off the course. Don't let the pleasures of this world lead you astray. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is going to happen. Set your hope on that. And secondly, remember the power of God. Oh, you might not believe it. And you might not believe me telling it to you. 
But you and I will experience joy in the presence of Christ far beyond your wildest dreams. It's beyond anything you can imagine. And thirdly, remember God's word. And we benefit from the New Testament. And we find the resurrection described throughout its pages. Remember what his word says about the resurrection. And so let me uh, try to apply this. <coughs> if you're depressed, and part of depression is sometimes losing hope, and you can't imagine that anything could get better, and that you're just stuck. Well, one day it will be different. And you're going to hear a commotion outside, and you're going to walk outside to look. And up in the sky is, you will see, not a news chopper flying overhead like we see all the time at our house, uh, uh, rescue a helicopter, medevac, uh, fly over our house all the time. You're not going to see a helicopter. It won't, it won't be a jet airplane. You walk out trying to find the source of that commotion, you are going to see Jesus Christ. It says, every eye will see him. He will appear in power and great glory. And he is going to keep coming. Maybe you don't believe this. It's going to happen. And from that day on, your depression will be gone as we join his train and return to earth and watch him conquer and defeat his enemies. It will be thrilling beyond imagination. Maybe you're sick this morning. Maybe you have a loved one that's ill, struggling with a lifelong illness or a life-ending illness. One day it's going to be different. And you might have to stagger outside of your house to find the source of that commotion. And it's not a medevac chopper coming to rescue you from your illness. You will see Jesus Christ in the sky. Every eye will see him. It's just the wildest thought. You are going to see Jesus coming in the sky. And again, you'll join his train, accompany him to earth where he uh, defeats his enemies, and you will never be sick for another day of your eternal life. That is really, really good news. Your depression ends. Your illness ends. And, and you that are fighting sin, and hopefully we're all fighting sin. If we're not fighting, then something's wrong. But you're sick of it. 
and you've struggled with it perhaps for a lifetime. And you're just so tired of putting on the armor another day and slogging off the battle. Because it really is hard. And you're going to hear a commotion outside. And you'll go out the front door clanking in your armor as you go. And you're going to look up in the sky and you know what you're going to see? You are going to see Christ returning. It's going to happen. Sometimes I, I hope it will happen before I die. So I can actually see it. I'll, I'll be there eventually anyway, but have to go through dirt to get there. I think I'd just rather see it while I'm alive. We have no idea when it's coming. No idea. Scripture says no man knows the hour. No man knows the hour. Angels in heaven, Jesus Christ himself doesn't even know the hour. But it's closer than it's ever been. And this truth of the resurrection that your broken down, clunky old body that you're in. If you're younger, it's not so clunky. <laughs> you, you won't be depressed for another day. Your, uh, your sickness will be gone. And your fight with sin will be over. This is what we hope for that day, the day, the great day of the Lord that Scripture uh, tells us about so clearly. Father, drive this precious truth into our souls. Give us strength to believe it, to accept it as what your word says. Our bodies will be resurrected and we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. Let our hope be in this and not in the pleasures of this temporary world where everything's going to burn. Strengthen us with your grace to cling to this and to set our hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.